Well, church, this morning we begin a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an Old Testament book uh, written by, we believe, a man named King Solomon. King Solomon was the son of David. Solomon began his life with a full heart before the Lord, uh, earnest about his faith, desiring to honor the Lord. And then in 1 Kings 11, it says that his heart was pulled away from the living God because he married many foreign women. And these women pulled his heart away from God, uh, and the singular worship of Jehovah God was eclipsed in his life. In fact, some of the women he married came from a region that worshiped a God called Molech, that in that worship involved children being sacrificed, which was ubiquitous in the world at that time. A horrible thing, horrible thing. But the Bible says that Solomon clung to these women in love. And so he, someone who was white hot in his devotion for the Lord became colder and colder and cooler and cooler in his temperament to the things of God. And so Ecclesiastes is the ruminations of an older man who is bitterly reflecting on the fact that he blew it in his midlife. And he's disappointed, discouraged, and absolutely thunderstruck with what he did. So today we're going to cover chapter one, which is the thesis statement of the book. In chapter one, the key theme is vanity of vanities. Uh, vanity is used uh, 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, 38 times. And it means everything around us is smoke and mirrors. It is ephemeral. It is a vapor. It is a mist. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses of chapter one. The words of the preacher, the son of David. King in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north and round and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So Ecclesiastes is a very healthy tonic for our soul, this Old Testament book. If, if, if you are a young person and you think life is nothing but joy and fulfillment and, and you're going to just grab the brass ring and go for it, this book is a reminder that life can be filled with disappointments. If, if you're middle-aged, and you know, the, the term midlife crisis uh, was first used, I think, in the 1967 at a psychiatric uh, convention in Canada by a Brit, a midlife crisis is now very part of our vocabulary, but it, it's something that happens, people say, between the age of 30, 
three, four, five, and age 50 when you hit the ceiling and realize you're not going to go much further than this in life. And so it leads to disappointment and resignation and sometimes disappointment. If you're in midlife and you've hit the ceiling, this book is a reminder that there is life, so much life. If you're older, and older people deal with cynicism. You can understand what Solomon says here. What has been, will be, and what will be, has been. It goes round and round and round and round and round. And if you're, I think if, if you're older and you deal with cynicism and it says nothing remains the same, nothing, nobody remembers. Listen, this is a great book that shouts out, right now counts forever. Do not fall into the abyss like Solomon has. You see, Solomon went from a man who would probably echo what his dad wrote in Psalm 5 that says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice, let them ever sing for joy. That's the way Solomon started. But he ended up singing something like this, vanity of vanities, everything is an ephemeral mist, nothing endures, nothing counts, no one remembers. Uh, there's an old hymn that's entitled, This Is My Father's World. And the second stanza goes like this, this is my father's world, the birds their carols sing, the morning light the lily white declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world, he shines in all that's fair. I love that line. In the rustling grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. So, so, so someone that lives life with a biblical worldview says, uh, he shines in all that's fair. I see the, the fingerprints of God everywhere. But see, Solomon had come to live only under the sun. In fact, in that first chapter, he uses that phrase three, maybe four times. He says in verse one, you toil under the sun. He says in verse nine, there's nothing new under the sun. He says in verse 13, under heaven. And then again in verse 14, under the sun. So under the sun means I only believe in and, and grasp and hold to that which I can see, touch, taste, or handle. There's nothing about an eternal perspective. And so you go from singing, this is my father's world. He shines in all this fair to say, vanity of vanities, everything is vain. I want you to hear this. Solomon lost the song in his heart in the worship of God. He lost the song. He lost the ability to, to glory in the goodness of God through, through, through a life of dissipation and neglect and inattention to things of God, his life unraveled. Listen, it happens fast. It happens fast. And so this book is a tonic for our souls. And it begins off with a thesis statement in verses 1 and 2. Vanity of vanities, everything is fleeting and elusive and ephemeral under the sun. See, Solomon knew, but he didn't know. Solomon knew there's one Lord God. His name is Jehovah. He is king. He's a great creator. He has no beginning. He has no end. But he had forgotten experientially. He knew, but he didn't really know. He had forgotten that the, that the catechism says, my only covenant in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to the living God. There's a man named Clyde Kilby who taught at Wheaton College for many years, and this is what he says. It's quoted in a book I'm reading. He says that one of the greatest tragedies of the fall of man into sin is that we get tired of familiar glories. 
See that? We grow tired of familiar glories. If you've been a believer for 10, 15, 20 years, it's easy to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sin and not be moved. I believe in the resurrection of the body and not be moved. I believe Christ died on the, on, the, on the cross for my sin and not be moved. I do not want to do that. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to grow tired of familiar glories. Illustration. Summer before I got married many years ago, I was in seminary and they, I did a research project one summer and got some seminary hours and we went, to, um, my friend and I went to the northwest corner of New Mexico, southern Colorado, and we established Bible reading groups in different subdivisions or communities, hopefully to plant a church in a couple of years and knocked on a bunch of doors, but we had some free time and we loved the out of doors. And so we went backpacking in the Rockies four or five times that summer for two or three days to shot, four days. And I, I grew up in the foothills of the Smokies. The Smokies are beautiful, but I, I've lived in the lowlands. I've never been out west in the mountains. Let me tell you something. The Rockies are a whole new beauty compared to the Smokies. They're beautiful. I remember the first time we went backpacking, it was late May, and we went hiking into the Rockies and pitched our tent, woke up the next morning, and the ground was covered with three or four inches of snow in late May. I went, whoa, this is cool. So, so we're, we're in the Rockies, and one day we're leaving, and we, we're in the, a pretty distant part of Colorado. We're heading back to New Mexico, and there's a, a valley there, this sparsely inhabited. There's a gas station, a little general store in this big valley, and it's ringed all the way around by snow-capped Rockies. And it was just beautiful. And so this is 1979. They still pumped your gas for you. They really did that a long time ago. They just, the guy come out and he just had his name stitched above his collar, his, you know, his shirt. And so this young guy comes out and, 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 and he's, he's, he's pumping gas. He's, he's looking down the whole time. I'm trying to talk to him and God, I'm just mesmerized and I, by the beauty. And I said, I said, I said man. Do you ever grow accustomed to this beauty? This is what he does. Yeah. That's it? Yeah. And I thought, I do that. See, this Christmas we'll have a, a wonderful Christmas production by our choir and orchestra and praise band. But the week before that, the Charleston Symphony is going to be here doing Messiah by Handel. They're choir and their orchestra, full orchestra. And it won't be free like our Christmas program, but they'll be here. And I, I love Handel's Messiah. If you don't know, Messiah's written by a guy named Handel. Dead giveaway, Handel's Messiah, just follow. And he wrote it in about 12 weeks. It's, it's incredible. And I, I thought, you know, when I hear, to me, the apogee of a Messiah is a choral production called the Hallelujah Chorus. And I thought, Lord, don't, don't ever let me hear the hallelujah chorus without being moved. King of kings, Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But, but we, grow, we grow familiar with these wonderful things, and they lose their power. It happened in your marriage. Married to a wonderful woman, but as years go by, or a wonderful man, you just go, your kids, your friends. It's a sad thing to, to, to be tired of familiar glories. And so this burnt out older man who was reflecting on his midlife 
crashing and burning. Gives us his personal credo in chapter one. He mentions four things. I'll mention them and then I'll give you the biblical response. Now he's talking about living under the sun. I'm talking about living with an eternal perspective. First of all, he says this, he says the created order, says the created order, says the earth, the earth remains forever. The sun rises and goes down and, and it pants, really or hastens to the place where it rises. So the sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, change of season, change of season, round and round and round we go. It says, how about the wind? It says, the wind blows to the south and, and goes around to the north and around and around the wind goes and on his circuit, the wind returns. How about the streams? We live in coastal South Carolina. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He says it's just the same thing day after day. Then he talks about mankind. He says two things about man. He says, first of all, verse 8, he says, A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing. In the sensate area, he says, there's no satisfaction. This is Solomon. He had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends, living girlfriends. And you're going, wow. Now, if you're in junior high, you, your mind is on overdrive right now. And... Uh, but, but, but really think about it. I mean, a thousand women, I mean, many of those were political alliances, but surely play the averages. Listen, play the averages among a thousand women. Some of them had to be pretty good looking. I mean, a, a number of them. And so you're thinking, man, Solomon had all of these beautiful women. He had wealth untold. He had power that was never diminished. And yet he says, as an old man, he says, listen, he says, there is no satisfaction. There is no joy. It just dissipates into nothingness. And he's going to say in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes these statements, and this is an amazing statement. He talks about old age. It's very picturesque. He says this. He says, verse 2, before the sun... And the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In other words, when you just get old and you can't see. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. See, keepers of the house, hands. And the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. Now, what would that be? Your teeth. You know, this is before dentures and dental care. And you got old, you just gum things to death. Till they said, I surrender. You swallowed it. Old men are bent. Hands tremble. It's a pretty bleak picture. Now, there are a lot of young people, especially in the worship center right now. A lot of young guys. And they're strong. I grabbed somebody's arm while I go and it's like, man, Unbelievable. 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. Man, they're there. 
Let me tell you guys, some of these older men walk right here that are bent and they can't hear very well, 50 years ago would have kicked your backside. They'd have taken you down in a heap. They'd have jujitsued you so fast you, you wouldn't know what hit you. But now they're bent. Now their hands shake. Now their back hurts. They can't see well. Really, I read this and I go, amen. If you don't have the hope of heaven and resurrection bodies and the best is yet to be, how do you grow old gracefully? Remember the poem you had to memorize in college? I, I just thought of this. It's, I think it's Robert Browning, Rabbi Ben Ezra. Is that right? It says, grow old with me, the best is yet to be. No, I don't think so. Really, it's tough getting old. That's, he's living under the sun. And then he says this about man. He says, he says there's no remembrance. Verse 4, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes. Verse 11, there, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who will come after us. There's, there is absolutely no remembrance This week, I was talking to three young men. I mean, they're bright guys, age 30 to 40-ish, I mean, smarter than I am. And we're talking about the hearings for Judge Kavanaugh and what was going on and what was being said. And, and they said, you know, it's just really sad. It's just they're just talking like this. And I said, you know, the whole thing, all this started, there was kind of a bipartisan deal before the late 80s. The guy named Robert Bork was nominated by President Reagan. Robert Bork educated at the University of Chicago, tenured law professor at Yale, and he was turned down because they thought he was, wouldn't, anyway, wouldn't cozy up to their political agenda. The majority turned him down. And so now we have a, 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 a new urban dictionary word. He's been borked. It means that he's been lampooned or un, unjustly accused. I said, you know, Robert Bork, and I looked at him and said, you know Robert Bork? None of them heard of Robert Bork. These are bright guys. This was 1987. This is Robert Bork, Judge Bork. And if he had been nominated and accepted, that we would live in a very different country today. That's all I'll say. You just forget. I mean, this is, this is one of the landmark issues of my life. And yet, they don't know. I was talking to a sports enthusiast this week, rejoicing in football, and we talked about, now we're on your fantasy team, Who'd, who would be one of your running backs? I said, I think the greatest running back in the history of the National Football League probably was a guy from Syracuse named Jim Brown, who played for the, the Browns. And, and they said, never heard of him. I know I'm old, so I, I, I can remember things that young people don't like. I don't know much about the Kardashians and much you guys do, and I'm, I'm much better for that, by the way. But, 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 but Jim Brown, Jim Brown, incredible running back. But my, my whole point is we just easily forget. And it's easy. When you get older, it says, nobody's going to remember. I love my family, but I have a struggle telling you the names of my great-grandfathers. Not my great-greats. I don't even know where to begin there. My great-grandfathers. If you went to one of them, a beautiful city in Tennessee named Knoxville, Tennessee, and you walk down the street and you ask the people of Knoxville, who is this city named after? Less than 1%, I promise you, can tell you who this city is named after. 
Henry Knox, Washington's chief right-hand man in the Revolutionary War, a wonderful man who was related to John Knox from Scotland, by the way. Henry Knox. We just forget. And then, so it's easy to step back and say, man, nobody's going to remember. Nobody's going to remember. Why go for it? It'll be forgotten. Why not just kick back and do whatever we want to do because people are going to forget. Then the fourth thing he says, he addresses the issue of wisdom. He says, I applied verse 13 in my heart to, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business. One way to translate this little word is it's a lousy job. It's a lousy job that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold is all vanity and a striving after the wind. He says learning is like trying to catch the wind in your hand. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom in surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, that's true. You study Solomon's life. He was the prototypical Renaissance man. As was his dad. He, he, he was bright. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that everything is just like trying to catch the wind. In verse 18, for much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I love our school here at Pan Christian Academy. And after reading this, I'm going to go to the board and say that let's be biblical and have a, our school seal. And this should be our, our life verse for PCA, Ecclesiastes 1.18. Much learning earns you much trouble. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Now, there's a lot of kids believe that, but that's just, that, listen, let me say, that's the rumination of a bitter old man. So don't go quoting that. Hey, teacher tomorrow, say, oh, let me quote a verse to you. Do your homework. Mm. Ecclesiastes 1.18. I didn't want to increase my sorrow, and I didn't want to be vexed in my spirit, so no, I didn't read the book yet. Don't try that. Anyway. It's an unhappy business. It's like striving after the wind. See, you're living under the sun. I, I thought many times about physicians and the incredible gift of medical science and how I read for a guy who's in charge of a residency program at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, told all the people entering the five-year internship or residency that if you study 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at the end of five years, you will be further back in the general knowledge in your field than you are right now. Because what's going to be added in your field will be so exponentially great, you can never catch up. I thought, then why bother? <laughs> you know, kind of sort of, I mean, good, good grief. Isn't that the way it is in almost any area of life? So you look at life under the sun, you go, Phew. so what's the biblical response? Biblical response. Number one. Well, what do you say to somebody who says that, that, that creation, the sun rises, the sun sets, the wind blows, the streams come in, the streams, it's, it's no big deal. You, well, you, you read Psalm 19 that says this, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day by day they pour forth speech, and night by night they reveal knowledge. Or you read Psalm 24 that says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You see, see, everything around us shouts the glory of God. Everything around us shouts the creativity and, and the design and the wonder of God. It's amazing. Everything, everything around us. When I was a freshman in high school, I was not academically attuned at all. I was going to be a great athlete. Ask me how that worked out for me. It didn't. But my freshman year, I had physical science with an old, 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 old lady named Eileen Martin. And Miss Martin would be teaching physical science with us, the migratory patterns of birds or, or, or how the insect do this or how the earth tilts this way and she was stopping her lectures and she would look at us and she'd say ain't God good ain't God good now I know she needed to go to the English department and learn how to speak but that's beside the point point. and what she was saying is behold the wonder of God and I, I just thought oh good grief it didn't impact me then it does now and I say that, that creation shouts the praise of God. There's a man named Christopher Hitchens who died last year of a very hard, harsh cancer. He was one of the new atheists. Uh, 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 went around lecturing on why he's an atheist. and He was an honest man. I think he was a very honest man. Um, and he, he said this. He said, he said, there is an argument for the reality of God that I have no answer for. He says, and that's the cosmological argument. Go back to Thomas Aquinas who died in 1275 and his five arguments for the existence of God. One was uh, basically what we call the cosmological argument that says when you see the intricacy of creation and when you see how the seasons come and go and how the earth rotates this much so we don't freeze to death and this much so we don't burn up or whatever and, and, and you see the incredible beauty of, 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 of creation, it shouts forth, there is a great creator God. And I said, amen, even though he didn't buy that. He said, I choose to believe it's all a huge mistake, which requires to me a whole lot of faith. And so we say to those who say creation is nothing but a mass, there's a great creator God who made the heavens and the earth. And we, we study, we study the, the number of bones in the human hand. And we go, wow. Or, or, or we study the, the migratory patterns of wood storks, my favorite bird. And you go, wow. Or, or, or we, 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 we hold a little baby up here when we dedicate and we think that, that just how this baby came and was tenderly and wonderfully made in the, in, in the womb of, her, of his or her mother. And we go, unbelievable. Don't lose the wonder. Secondly, what do you say to people who say we get no satisfaction in life, that, that, that we operate on the law of diminishing returns and, and uh, our, our body falls apart and so forth and so on? You say, that's true. You say growing old is hard. Growing old is difficult. That the body, we groan in our body longing to be clothed with the reality of Christ in heaven. That old age is difficult. But there is a glory that awaits. It's called heaven. And there is a resurrection body in the new heavens and the new earth. And when our body will become like 
the resurrection body of Jesus, and we will live forever and ever and ever. And the greatest gift in this life, the greatest meal, is a, is a foretaste of the glory to come. The most warm embrace of a friend is a foretaste of the glory to come. The laughter that fills our souls from time to time is a foretaste of the glory to come. And we can't begin to imagine what awaits us there. For we can grow old with dignity. What do you say to those who say, well, nobody remembers, nobody knows? You say, well, yes, God knows and God remembers. Psalm 56 says this, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? For you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the light of life. Verse 13. But verse 8, you, you have put, you have kept count of my tossings. I talked to a good friend the other day, and he said, you know, I was traveling, and the other night I, I couldn't sleep. I, I tossed and turned, I think, almost the whole night. I just couldn't sleep. He said, I prayed for all of my children and grandchildren and friends and people in my community group and my man-to-man table. They were prayed over that night. And I thought, you know, I thought of this verse, God keeps record of our tossings and our turnings. He says, listen, he says, your tears, the tears you weep for people, the tears you weep over sin, it says here that God wonderfully puts them in a bottle. God remembers. God knows. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Listen. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Your deeds follow you. What you do counts for eternity. Man has significance. People who live only under the sun say, it's no big deal. Life is no big deal. People that have a supernatural orientation say, life is a gift from God. I am responsible to God. I've been bought by the blood of Christ on the cross. What I do counts. Don't buy the lie. They may not name highways after us or bridges or states, but God knows. And so what I do, and this puts the death blow into the mind of cynicism and despair. God knows, God watches over us. He's our shepherd, our heavenly father, and he loves us. You you never retire. Retirement is a modern invention from the pit of hell in this regard. You retire and quit. You never quit. You never quit. Let me tell you about some of my favorite people in this church. There's a man named Derek Walden, one of our elders, just, and, and he, he's in charge of a prison correspondence ministry, started by John Braun. We have a, a prison correspondence ministry from this church to 900 plus prisoners all over the United States. They've, they've applied and been part of a Bible correspondence 
program, we send them material, they read it, they take a test, we grade their test, we write them, we encourage them, we send them Bibles. Once they get to a certain level, they think that's the coolest thing in the world, a real Bible with their, I think their name's on it. It's just wonderful. But, but, the, but the people who do this ministry, the vast majority of them are older women, elderly women, who come by every week and get their little stack of materials to grade and to write these prisoners and to be involved with them and to pray for them. And they're, they're older, many of them are well beyond 80. And they're saying, you know, I, I can't get on the floor and keep a, a two-year-old nursery. I can't go on a mission trip to inner city wherever or to another country. But you know what? I can sit at my desk at my home, sometimes with very thick glasses on, and I can grade papers and write these prisoners and pray for them in the name of Jesus. They do not retire. And when it gets to the point I can't do this, I can say, send me a list of the fourth grade kids in our church and I will pray for them every day that the kingdom of God will come in their lives. I am not going to retire because what I do counts. See, if if, if I'm out there and I'm just a guy living under the sun and I get old and my body's falling apart, I am mad as, I'm just mad. And there's no wonder old people get cynical and angry. There's no wonder young people become cynical and angry because life isn't what they thought it was going to be. There's no, there's no, to me, there's no, there's no mystery that a middle-aged person hits the ceiling and realizes this is it. I'm married to her or him. And I got these, these kids, what happened? Seriously. And that's where Solomon's living. And I say, brothers and sisters, let us not be despairing people, but let us have a worldview that says, behold the glory of God. That what I do right now, whether it's giving a cup of cold water, or praying for people, or buying somebody a lunch, or, 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 or giving in a multiple way to, to various, that counts forever. Remember Matthew 25? What did Jesus say? When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in the hospital, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. I said, Lord, we... we when you do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it to me? Really? Really? So what about wisdom? You say wisdom is nothing but a vexation. It's a, to know knowledge increases your sorrow. So well, listen, baloney. There's a guy named Abraham Kuyper from the Netherlands that came to us, Princeton in 1904, I think it was, and gave lectureship. And he said this, and it's been quoted 5,000 times every year since then. He said, there's, there's not one inch, inch over all creation which the Lord Jesus Christ does not cry, this is mine, mine. It is a glorious thing to worship God by learning good literature, to worship God by understanding the physics whereby we build things or how things work, or to rejoice in the wonder of, 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 of just putting sentences together and speaking rhetorically with great passion. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus. Or learning how to cook. Or learning how to do auto mechanics. It's just great. So two things very quickly as we close. Number one. Labor. Listen to me. Labor. Labor. To not lose the wonder labor. 
Labor to embrace the joy. Labor to understand the wonder of a great creator God who is Trinitarian in his nature and eternal in his perspective. Who in the fullness of time became a man and died on the cross for our sin. Do not let it dissipate through unbelief. Do not let it affectionately slip away from us because we grow weary with familiar glories. So we're reading the book of the staff, and it says that a disciple, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who is constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. That's a pretty good definition of disciple. A forgiven sinner who is constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. So, so let's say this represents the line of demarcation where you became a believer in Christ. When I was 19, I did that. I, I, I understood that Jesus died on the cross as my substitute. Boom. The blinds fell off. And so I, I committed my life to Christ. So, so from that point forward, it is, I'm, a, I'm a forgiven sinner learning Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. So the question is, where you're sitting today, I said this to the men Friday morning, where you're sitting today, um, what would it mean to take a step further into the glory of Christ? What, what, what is an area of your life that you constantly need, need to learn from Jesus and commit to him as you walk in repentance and faith? I mean, so, so, all of us will always be learning till we die because we're never done with sin and the glory of God is never exhausted. So a, a, a disciple is someone who is constantly learning Jesus. He's a forgiven sinner, constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. It's very simple. So I say, Lord, don't let me lose the wonder. Secondly, just two things. Think often on your death, on the brevity of life. The book of Ecclesiastes, we'll see this in a few weeks. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral then all you can eat barbecue, where at the barbecue, all you do is talk about nothing. He says, because all men will end up in the house of mourning. We have segmented death in our culture. And so therefore, we don't think about it as often as we should. You and I will die one day. And for many of us, long before we thought about the fact that we will die. I read this week, just picked up a paper and saw where a guy named, last name of Lawford had died at the age of 63. I said, Lawford? I mean, I wonder if it's related to Peter Lawford, who was married to John Kennedy's sister. And then it says, this man was the nephew of John Kennedy. So, ah, so Peter Lawford's son, who was married to John Kennedy's sister. And it said that this guy had had a a history of drug and alcohol abuse, but lately he had done better, and he'd even written a book talking about how, to, how, how he's been freed from that. And I thought, well, that's really cool. But listen, he died at a yoga studio. Maybe he was doing down to facing dog, and he collapsed. Gone. Life. So, Remember in literature in college, there's a guy named Lord Byron. Supposed to be a great poet. I, I really not, didn't get into his poetry very much. But anyway, read a biography about him recently. Lord Byron died at the age of 36. 
He is known in the history of literature as a immoral, clownish profligate who seduced other men's wives and other wives' husbands. He had to flee England because he was going to be accused of sexual impropriety and he lived in Italy. He was known for his excess in every area. Again, died at the age of 36. But Lord Byron had, had got a human skull and it was, had been cracked and so he, he simulated it together and he put a liner in it and he used that skull as a cup from which to drink. And so he would drink from a human skull. Now listen, if you're a single young woman and you're dating a guy that does that, don't marry them. That's pretty bizarre. That's pretty weird. So anyway, that's what Lord Byron would do. And he said, I'm doing this to remind myself that one day I will die. Therefore, I need to seduce as many women and men as I possibly can today and do as much binge drinking as I can today. If you've been living today and binge on Netflix today. Conversely, if you read the literature of the early church and really the Puritans, this is a painting of a guy named St. Jerome, an early leader in the church, and there's a human skull on his desk. Now, we don't know if he really did that, but, but many of them would keep a skull around to remind them that, yes, we're going to die. But, but, but their perspective is, yes, I'm going to die. Therefore, let me live with sobriety and seriousness before the living God to whom I will give an account. So, so one guy said, I've got a human skull to remind myself that I'm going to die one day, so I'm going to really do everything I can today to, to, to throw caution to the wind. The other person said, I'm going to die one day, therefore I'm, I'm going to remember the, my creator in the days of my youth, Ecclesiastes 12. I want this book to be a tonic to my soul and to your soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the uh, ability to open the Bible and read it and to understand its message. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making it clear to us. And I, I do pray that, um, Lord, we live in a culture that says, really, pursuing eternal things is like trying to grasp the wind. Who knows? We live in a culture that looks at the great models around us of creation and beauty and say, they say it's, it's kind of an impersonal thing that, that there's no great creator God behind. In fact, to talk about intelligent design is high heresy in many circles. And yet the scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. We live among people who will say old age is hard and you die and nobody remembers, therefore, live only for yourself. And we stop and we say, no, no. There's a God to whom I must give an account. This same God died on the cross for my sins and has gifted me to represent him to my culture. So, Lord, don't let us buy the lie. And as we study the life of this burnt out, depleted man who walked away from you, May we resolve to be people of energy and vitality and love in the name of Jesus. Amen.